Well, good morning. My name is Lee Roberts. Uh, I'm reading uh, the Bible passage that John will preach on from Mark 15 today, beginning at verse 42. In the previous passage in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been falsely accused. He's been tried, he's been condemned, flogged, mocked and crucified, just as he said he would. His lifeless body hangs on the cross. But as Jesus powerfully asserted, this isn't the end of the story. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. As we come to our last instalment, In the book of Mark, uh, let me pray. Dear Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray that I might speak faithfully to it now, that we might grow in our knowledge and love and awe of you. Amen. It's difficult to know what is true anymore. And we have so much access to so many truth statements that it just feels a little overwhelming. Uh, And if we're honest, we probably gravitate to those statements that most conveniently, most easily align with what we want our truth to be. And that sort of thinking fits well with this language of my truth, which says if I feel it is true, then it is true for me and you can't question my truth. So when it comes to God, we almost talk as if my truth 
defines God's existence. If my truth includes God, then God exists. And if my truth doesn't include God, then God doesn't exist. But in the end, uh, objective reality is always going to trump my feeling of truth. It doesn't matter whether I want God to exist or not. The only real question is, does God exist? And if he does, then can he be known? And perhaps most important of all, what does he want from us? Now, the opening words in the book of Mark make a bold claim. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus is equally clear about what God wants. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And the truth of those two declarations comes down to the resurrection. If it is true, it's the best good news we could possibly imagine. If it's not true then it might give us all sorts of comfort and hope, but in the end, it's built on a lie. So we might feel that the wisdom of the Bible is you know, helpful for navigating life and making us you know, better people or more moral people. There might even still be a God out there. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus isn't the way, the truth or the life. Uh, And the early Christians knew exactly what was at stake. So a few weeks after Jesus has been crucified, the Apostle Peter stood up in Jerusalem and he testifies to what's happened. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So Peter doesn't just point people to what happened on the cross. He points people to the resurrection because the resurrection confirms the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians points us to the importance of the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So last week, as we read about the cross, we reflected on our rejection of God and what it means for Jesus to be our substitute, that he pays the price for our sin. And today it's about recognising Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God, who really does have the power to free us from sin and to secure our eternity. So if last week was a sombre thankfulness, then today is a joyful confirmation. As we read this passage today, one of the things that perhaps jumped out to you is how abruptly it ends. In fact, it's so abrupt, you almost sort of want to flick the page to see, you know, what what did I miss? Or, you know, there's something missing. The opening words of the book are bold and majestic. 
But after this sort of spectacular news about Jesus rising from the dead, the ending feels just a little bit anticlimactic. And if that's how you feel, then you are in good company. So there's a note in your Bible, in your physical Bible at least, that'll say something like this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verse 9 to 20. So when academics uh, compare different versions of various books of the Bible, they often come across minor changes. And some of them are so minor, they're really just copying errors as a, as a scribe rewrites what is written. But sometimes it's more substantial, and the ending of Mark is an example of that. So someone has attempted to change the ending to something that feels just a little more befitting and grand, for the moment. Now, there are lots of manuscripts that have this extended ending, but the oldest manuscripts, so the ones that are considered most reliable, finish at verse 8. Uh, but before we get to the end, uh, let's go back to the beginning. So, for the disciples watching Jesus die on the cross, this is a hope crushing moment. You know, for all of their blindness, they've come to recognise that Jesus really is the Messiah. He's sent by God to restore Israel and establish a kingdom that is going to be a blessing to all nations. And now he is dead. And in this moment of grief, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea steps up. So he's a member of the ruling religious council and he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus, which is perhaps more courageous than we give him credit for because the religious leaders hated Jesus. They've just orchestrated his crucifixion and here is Joseph choosing to stand up against the mood of the moment to give Jesus an honourable burial. And Mark gives us just perhaps a glimpse of his motivation when he describes Joseph as someone who is waiting for the kingdom of God, which means he's recognised that even now, Jesus has a part to play in God's plan. And so he takes the body of Jesus, he wraps it in a linen cloth, he places it in a tomb, but all of this is happening on the eve of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a day of rest, and you can't do any work at all, including preparing a body for burial. And so on Saturday, the disciples waited. And that has got to be the longest day of their life. You know, as they're sitting, perhaps talking about, you know, the last three years and what's just happened and what does this mean for the future? They had put everything on Jesus and now Jesus was gone. And then finally we get to the Sunday morning, it's just before sunrise and some of the women who were disciples of Jesus come to the tomb with the spices they'd prepared and they're expecting to find the body of Jesus. But when they arrive, the stone has been rolled back that sealed the tomb and as they go inside, they don't find the body of Jesus but they do find a young man dressed in white robes. Now, some people like to make a big deal of the different gospel accounts 
of this young man. Uh, So the Gospel of Luke has two men. Uh, John has two men but describes them as angels. Across the different accounts, uh, their clothing is white or gleaming white or super gleaming white. Uh, Not their words, uh, that's sort of my paraphrase. Uh, But in any sort of given situation, we, we should expect those kind of differences. You know, as we as two people describe different events, you know, it depends on, you know, what they care about, what they value in their experience, and also, you know, what they're trying to communicate. So if I go to the shops and I tell my wife, Sarah, that I saw Bruce, uh, you know, I might leave out all sorts of details about Bruce. I might leave out the detail that Bruce was with Roger. Uh, I might leave out the detail that I, I didn't actually see Bruce once, I saw him twice, but only talk about one of the conversations because we were talking about going to Carnarvon Gorge and they've been to Carnarvon Gorge and we want to go to Carnarvon Gorge and so all of that seems very relevant. But if I was there with a friend, all those details that I leave out, they might include because they they feel it's relevant to the conversation. So two different people, two very different descriptions of what's happened but fundamentally the message hasn't changed. Uh, One detail that Mark does include is the young man saying that Jesus is going ahead of them to Galilee. And that's important because Mark is describing what Jesus said would happen at the Last Supper. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Uh, Interestingly, perhaps the biggest stumbling block to Jewish people believing this account at the time was the fact that women were the primary witnesses of the resurrection. Uh, It's incredibly sexist, but women weren't considered reliable witnesses. In fact, in Jewish culture at the time, they weren't even allowed to to testify in a dispute. Uh, So if you're going to make up this account uh, with a hope of being believed, then the women discovering the empty tomb was an inconvenient truth. And inconvenient truths are at least an indicator, certainly not a proof, but they're an indicator of authenticity. Because why would you include a detail that's actually going to get in the way of your own argument? So why should we care? Uh, Firstly, the resurrection testifies to God being faithful to his word. As we read the history of Israel, God promised over and over again that he will send a Messiah and establish a kingdom. And when Jesus comes along, he declares that he's the one who's going to bring this kingdom. And the resurrection confirms that this kingdom has arrived. Yeah, as Australians, I don't think we really resonate with the language of kingdom, uh, let alone the idea of God's kingdom being somewhat present. Yeah, you kind of look around and go, well, where is it? You know, we're thinking place and location and, and government. But it's a kingdom that's defined by people, not place. Uh, people who are united by Christ and Christ is present through the Spirit. Uh, Secondly, the resurrection confirms that God really has dealt with sin. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't particularly unique in terms of someone dying, even someone dying for a good cause. Uh, But what is unique is what he achieves. 
And it's confirmed that he really has done what confirms that he really has done what he said he would do. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, For many, that's an enormous relief because you don't need anyone to convince you that you are a sinner. And the good news is that before God, Jesus has dealt with our sin and forgiveness is there if we want it. Uh, We can't earn forgiveness, we can't earn our salvation, we can only accept it. But it does come with at least two conditions and a caveat. Uh, The first condition is, if we want forgiveness, we need to be sorry. Uh, We try often to teach our children to say sorry when they do the wrong thing, but I think often what we end up teaching them is to simply say the words, I'm sorry, and then you kind of, you know, get off the hook. Now, our oldest daughter, Lucy, is 21. She lives in Perth, so she's not here to defend her good reputation. Uh, But uh, when she was younger... Ish, uh, she had almost down to an art form, you know, saying sorry, where, where the words were, I'm sorry, but what came out was, I'm anything but sorry, but I will comply so that you get off my case. Uh, if we really are sorry, then we need to mean it and we need to turn away from our behaviour. And God does know the difference between sorry and sorry I got caught. Uh, Secondly, and more importantly, being sorry and forgiveness before God isn't simply turning away from bad behaviour and appeasing guilt. Uh, Those things are just symptoms of the bigger issue, which is our relationship with God is broken. And so forgiveness is only possible if we're willing to recognise the authority of Jesus over our lives and submit to that authority. Now, do we really see God as God, who is worthy of all glory and honour and praise? And I wonder if even as Christians, uh, we've lost that sense of awe. When people talk about their favourite celebrities, you get a sense of awe. You you look at Taylor Swift, and clearly she gets a reaction. Uh, The Beatles induced a certain sort of level of hysteria. And, you know, just to be equal, uh, it's not just the ladies. You know, the the blokes can get just as passionate and just as involved. Uh, If you talk to these fans, uh, they've got no problem talking about how much they love these celebrities. And if the celebrity said, could you do me a favour and just pop over to Mongolia and get me a yak, then they would move heaven and earth to make that possible because they want to demonstrate their love they want the approval and the respect of this wonderful amazing talented person so for some we've turned our celebrities into god and we've turned god into something akin to the prime minister now the prime minister is kind of boring but he is in a position of authority and his job is to make my life better. So if he gives me what I want, then I will show him some respect. And if he doesn't, then I won't. If that's our approach to God, 
then we've twisted God's goodness and grace and that language of Christ coming to serve into something that isn't just generous and merciful, but actually something we're entitled to. And so it's only with God's help that we actually see the problem and come to a point of recognising our arrogance or perhaps our apathy or ignorance and repenting and turning things around. But there is a big difference between the way we relate to a celebrity compared to how we relate to God. With a celebrity, we're perhaps trying to earn their love. Uh, With God, we are loved. Um, We're not trying to earn his love. We're simply living out his love for us as he shapes us by his spirit. The caveat in all of this is repenting and being forgiven fixes our relationship with God, but it might not fix the very real consequences and ongoing consequences of our sin. Uh, If you are separated from your husband or wife, being a Christian or becoming a Christian might not fix your marriage. Becoming a Christian doesn't solve our financial woes. And God does forgive But that doesn't necessarily mean that others will forgive. And then thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus testifies to our future hope. If Christ has been raised, then we can be confident as followers of Christ that he'll be faithful to his promises and raise us with him. Uh, So going back to those words of Paul, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And because that is true, we can be confident when he says he will raise us to life when we put our trust in him. Yeah, our bodies are going to die just like Jesus died on the cross. But just as Christ was restored bodily, we look forward to sharing in a physical new heaven and a new earth, but free from the consequences of sin. You know, one of the wonderful things about going to a Christian funeral is the confidence and the hope that we have in Christ. You know, of course, we are profoundly sad. We're grieving because we miss someone we love. But if what we are experiencing now, if this is God's world, but broken and marred by sin then imagine what God has prepared for us next. That's the hope we have in Christ. And we can be confident of that hope because of the resurrection. Because Jesus has already removed all the obstacles and Jesus has already led the way. As we come to the end of Mark, we have before us one of four accounts Of the resurrection. And even in the few words that we've looked at today, Mark wants us to be confident about what we believe. Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you are a Christian here today, then you have responded to that good news. And so we say with confidence and relief and joy. Those words that we often say at Easter, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.